Hello, and welcome back to Beats, Rye, and Types, your favorite podcast about music, food, and programming. I said it right this time. Uh, <laughs> we're joined this week by a good friend of ours, David Nolan, uh, who's up in Brooklyn, New York. And he uh, introed us to this podcast uh, with a super uh, winter-appropriate jam, which is uh, Nico's cover of uh, The Doors, The End. So, hi, David. Hi. <laughs> we always ask our guests why they chose their song. So tell me why you chose your song. So I'm actually a huge Nico fan. I've always liked her stuff, but I, I don't, you know, sometimes I like the way I listen to people's records. Like, I know somebody might have like 10 records, and I only get around to listen to a couple of them. And I listen to the other ones when I get, you know, whenever. And I randomly one day listen to that song. And of course, I'm pretty sure that one's produced by John Cale. I think John Cale is a genius. And like the way he records stuff is pretty amazing. And it's a really long, weird song. I mean, it's the type of song that people would hate, right? You like, <laughs> put it on, they're like, turn this off. This sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's really great. It's really freaky. And then at the very end, they drop this groove and it's just, it's just so cool. I love Nico, and not a lot of people really know her music, I think. Like, maybe they have some of her songs in, like, Wes Anderson movies now or whatever. Yeah. But, like, uh, Nico is an amazing uh, musician. Did you see that? Have you seen that documentary, uh, Nico Icon? I have not seen it. I, I haven't seen oh, it Oh, man. Yet. It's so heavy and depressing. Her life is, like, her life was so, was, was really unique. Um, and so was her voice. And she was definitely really good at uh, making songs that people would hate. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so yeah, I, I'm just like, I mean, one of my favorite records of all time, uh, going back, this goes back to our, um, uh, we, we did that thing together at Strange Loop, our favorite records. But uh, one of my favorite, another favorite record from 1969 is her, The Marble Index. Oh, man. And it's like, yeah. a, it's a killer record. Oh, man. The Marble Index is like, I remember when I first heard that, I was in college and I was just like, <laughs> I can't even believe that this music was like made. Yeah. It's so it's like, oh man, what's the song? What's the, uh, what's the first one? It's like the lyrics are so, the lyrics are so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> all those, all those songs. Are like, all those songs, but yeah. like, yeah. All, but this all particular those. one. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, I don't remember which one, one of them, one of the songs just, just murdered me the first time that I heard it. But anyway, I, I actually yeah. have this amazing uh, Velvet Underground. My friend Ben Umanov, his dad owns this famous guitar store in the West Village. Umanov Guitars. All the famous, you know, rock musicians in New York and all shop there and get their guitars fixed there. And G. Smith was always like hanging around. And one time we would like go there after school and high school and like mess around on nice guitars. And one time we were like hanging out, like playing guitar and bass in like their little like jam studio when we were playing Waiting for My Man, like the Velvet Underground song. Like obviously we were really horrible. We're just like, you know, like jamming like horrible teenager, teenage dudes just probably stoned and doing the worst rendition of Waiting for My Man ever without any of the context too. And one of the guys who like worked there and repaired guitars there was like, we knew like that we knew they knew Lou Reed and we knew they were friends with him. So it was probably pretty precocious for us to be playing that song in the first place. And one of the guys just like opens the door to the little thing and is like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> 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 just like so embarrassed. By it. That's amazing. <laughs> it's like, 
He's like, I'll call Lou and tell him to, <laughs> to, to, to tell you to shut up. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to you don't want to mess around with that guy. David, I think you're one of we've had a lot of awesome guests on the show, but there are only a few guests that we can talk about all three of our main subject areas uh, very fluently with, which, you know, because you make music and you also write programs for computers. And uh, since I know you uh, personally, I know that you really do enjoy good food. And I know that you uh, recently did some traveling. You went to Korea where you have some relatives and ate some amazing food. And we were Aaron and I were curious about where you went and some of the some of the good stuff you ate. I would love I love to. And I kind of have been like say I've been like saving up uh, asking you for details. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've been like saving up asking you for details until I was able to ask you these things on the record. So tell us about some of the tell us a little bit about that. That's I think it's a I think it's a good story. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I went with my girlfriend. And so the way that we did it was we kind of split up duties. Like she was like, this is where I want to be. This is the city I want to be at. And she she did the whole itinerary planning. She really had specific things and places she wanted to go and see. And then she was like, okay, you have to figure out every night where we're eating. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And so wherever we would go, I was just like on the blogs, constantly reading, trying to find reviews. Because we were in a couple of weird cities. Every city we were, it was like we have to do something special about that city. So, for example, we went to um, Jeju-do, which is a volcanic island off the southern coast, right, of South Korea, which is a huge sort of vacation honeymoon spot. And they have this thing called black pork, which you have you heard of this? No, it's uh, it sounds awesome. Well, I mean, it's so it's it's pigs, and the way they're fed is that they're fed, and then they're fed on their own shit. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that's a specialty, right? So we had black pork. What is it like a specific? Do they just they serve like a whole pig? Or no, 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 no. Like so. A- so, okay, uh, in Korea, uh, doing the barbecue thing is big, but, you know, Americans are probably more used to the beef, but actually pork belly is a huge thing, right? So, and that's called samgyeopsal. And so it's a specialty in Jeju-do to get samgyeopsal, but the meat is this black pork thing. And it was, I mean, I cooked on coals and we sat down and it was 90 degrees outside because it was in August, it was so hot. It was great. And then, you know, there were things like seafood, of course, is big there. And, you know, we got this amazing thing called kalchichorim, which I don't know the name of the fish, but it's this amazing fish. And it's just, you know, it's all the bones, right? See, like you're, you're forced to deal with the seafood, like bones, shells. It's super messy. But, you know, like the most amazing thing you've ever had as a general rule. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah. And so oh, another place we went to was in Busan. So this is a good story because we, we were chatting about this a little bit earlier. But so we went to the Jakalchi fish market. And so you literally walk in and it's like you look and it must be like the size of a football field. This bottom floor, it's two, two stories. Bottom floor is like 100 vendors with tanks with living sea creatures in it. And you literally point at the things that are alive and they're going to serve it to you in 10 minutes meaning they kill all the fish. And of course, one of the things we got was these little baby octopuses and they serve it to you and they kill it right then. And so the tentacles are still moving. And this is not, this is not an esoteric specialty. This is just the Korean mentality about it's not fresh if you didn't just kill it. it like that's the only thing fresh can mean. Like it was just alive. 
it was awesome. I mean, it was just like, there was constantly, like everywhere we went, it was, it was something like that. Uh, the other thing I highly recommend, if it, which is going to be easier to do, I think, in the States, I became a fan of the Korean uh, rice wine, makgeolli. So in Korea, Western bars are places where you go dancing, these big dance clubs. But the traditional bars are like places where you go sit down and you eat and you get wasted. That, that, that's, like, <laughs> that's what they do. They just like, you get some friends together. We found this tiny little spot opened up by this um, Korean actor. It was like something weird, like My Little Blue Star. It had, a, had a, such a corny name, but it was so, so corny. But it was an actor, and so the whole place was, it was like so divey. A whole, all the walls were covered in these awesome, badass Korean movie posters, meaning they were Western posters, but like redone for Korean audiences. And so it was like, like for example, P.T. Anderson's The Master, and it's like the weirdest poster you've ever seen. But you sit down, <laughs> you order food, and they bring you like this gigantic, gigantic metal teapot filled with rice wine, right? And uh, we were there for like two hours, just like, it was awesome. Wow. So, so good. <laughs> yeah, I know shochu, yeah. but I'm, I'm not familiar with that rice wine. So what's the, is it, is it like 15% alcohol levels thing or something like that? Or is it stronger? No, it's so it's not. It's very, it's very light. You know, it's, I would I would say the experience of drinking it's for me it seemed much more like sake. It's more of like a social thing. Like it's not super strong. You 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 have to get food with it, and it's just it's like a social thing. You know, it's like you should be hanging out with your best buddies, and you should be like doing this for three <laughs> hours. And it really was like that. We were sitting there, and nobody moved from any of those tables. Right? Like <laughs> people were sitting there forever and nobody was getting rushed out it was awesome cool so it's probably more like a it's more like a rice beer kind of thing almost right yeah yeah and it looks corn it looks it looks it looks a little like tacky like they sell it in like the markets and it comes in this horrible plastic white thing <laughs> i mean it, it used to be you could you could buy it on the street i think it's illegal now there would be there would always be like old men when these carts pushing around these rice plastic rice wine bottles but i don't think they can do that anymore so it's funny it's like a drink that was like the cheap drunks drink and now it's cool again so can you find that here have you found it in the states or any place to drink it here uh because it's now now it's cool in seoul and other places in south korea again uh, it's becoming easier to find. You can get it served. You can get served it. I think at a lot of barbecue places now in in New York. Go to a barbecue spot and like get it. And and I will say, you know, Seoul was amazing. But I mean, there are great barbecue places um, in Queens, in Flushing, in New York. So you can definitely get the real deal here. One one thing that's amazing about uh, eating when you travel is, uh, which I think you were starting to like get at in your description of. Uh, the bar and and the differences between a bar there and a bar in the states is like not. Uh, I think people sometimes think like they're gonna go somewhere and like eat you know weird or different food or whatever. But but to me, just as important as like what you eat is like how people eat in a place, right? Like what the what the other like you know just like in 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 the states you know there's we have rituals like grab a beer means you'll probably like have five beers and end up eating hot wings or whatever right <laughs> and like cocktail or whatever we do these kinds of things but when i started to first travel around europe a little bit was when i realized like people just eat in their in in these very different ways like they could eat the same exact food that we ate but it would still feel and be so different because of like 
how differently the the rituals are around eating. That's like it's such an interesting thing. So so unique to a place. Right. Yeah, I definitely found that same thing in Japan that you were describing in Korea, too, of like there's not a lot of which I really appreciated that there's not a lot of like just straight up drinking without having good food at the same time too. Yeah. You know, like you have to, like it's, they're intertwined. Whereas like a lot of friends in New York, like, the, like they'll go out and they'll go out to drink and it's like a completely separate thing. Whereas me, I always want to like, you know, if you're eating and drinking, you can actually go for, you can take the night a lot longer <laughs> than yeah, just yeah. trying to pound back shots at a, at a bar or something like that, you know? Um, and for me, that's, I love that. Cause it also feels, it's like, you can talk to people, you sit, you're eating and you're going from one place to another, maybe two, but eating and drinking different things at the same time. I really love that, that ritual. Totally. And I mean, it's definitely the case that like, you know, man, we, we were there, you know, we were in Seoul on, on a Friday and a Saturday night and the Koreans like to have fun. I mean, that's like, you know, it's the, it's, there are no less, they're, they're at least as hardcore as New Yorkers. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. Word. So that's cool. I, I'd really love to get over there and eat someday. I, I think that there's like, yeah, dig into that, that same idea about like how, how you eat and the rituals around eating. It's like you go to uh, out, out somewhere in Queens in New York to like get some food of some specific like regional place and you get to eat the food and it's delicious and it's probably something that you've never tried before, but there really is something about seeing the conditions in under which that food is normally eaten. And so it's just such a, I know, I think I'm just some kind of like saying the same thing over and over again, but it is such an, <laughs> no, it's no, such no, an no. important it's- part of the food. It's like such a funny thing. Like when you're an American and you go abroad and like see how people eat like cheeseburgers in other countries, it's always <laughs> weird, right? It's always like some yeah, exactly. other, they're eating them for breakfast or some shit like that, you know? No, and no. That, yeah. No, so you're, to, so, so yeah. So let, let's, let's talk about something that you can encounter, which I highly recommend if you go to Seoul. So you, you can go to fancy places. You can go to the fanciest place. One of our favorite spots in Seoul, which I can't remember because I can't remember how to say the name, was a a barbecue spot that that we found. And their specialty was they would do the barbecue in the middle on charcoal. And it had this thing where the juices would flow down the side and there was a, a gutter that went around. They put egg into the gutter. The fat from the pork cooks the egg. And they put kimchi and and like onions into that egg stuff. And it was so inexpensive. It was like fifteen. It was like fifteen bucks for one order of this stuff, or ten bucks. We were like, we were sitting on plastic chairs. Like there were no like walls. Like we were facing the street. Um, it was ninety degrees. There was like fans. Our napkins were Hello Kitty toilet paper on toilet paper rolls on toilet paper rolls. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> you know, and it was so. It was like you were. I was looking around. I was like, what? <laughs> And it's like it felt so, you know, like unexpected. It was just the most delicious food and, you know, amazing atmosphere because it was like nothing like like you're saying, Mike, like nothing, nothing like what I'm used to. Where would I find a place like this? In New York? <laughs> yeah. And if, yeah. And if they try if they tried to like replicate it in New York, you know, it would just like like especially I guess like ramen spots in New York. Like that's a thing where like Japanese ramen in Japan, there's definitely like a range, but there's definitely also like it's like a pretty utilitarian food, you know, it's something yeah. that people eat 
all the time and then trying to bring that to new york when people try to bring those things and do it in new york like it always gets tainted with this pretension that you that that like the original the source material just never has you know and and that that absence of it is almost what is one of like the magical things about it that no one you're like yeah you're, you're it doesn't matter that you're wiping your face with hello kitty <laughs> toilet paper like the food is just so good that it, it just transcends you know and that's that's kind of the point right and i would even go with with mike it makes it better if, yeah, you know, yeah it, totally. it makes it's like it's part of the experience. <laughs> yeah, we talk about that a lot on this show, just about the, you know, and, and in our, uh, the, the pizza book has a big theme of this running through it where it's really like uh, what makes food great is just how it puts people together in these different situations. And like, that's what you really get out of it. David and I have had, you know, Lots of nights out together, uh, drinking and eating. And I remember like what we talked about and all this other kind of stuff. But I don't, I don't remember like what we ate so much. But that's probably because we drank too much. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I think it's it's one of the great privileges uh, that comes along with uh, being able to like do some traveling for professional reasons is to like go and end up somewhere and eat something and uh, try to get someone who lives wherever you're at to, to like, you know, take me to the real, take me to the real spot. Take me to where you would eat. Uh, don't take me to like someplace that you think is going to be like safe for me. You know, I want to go to like the, the, the places where you and your friends go. So. Yeah. It's funny though. It's funny though, because you know, my mom's Korean and I, I sent her some photos and she was like, where are you? That does not look like a restaurant. (laughs) 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 I know you're like, mom, isn't this great? She's like, I would not eat there. If you paid me, if you built me a wooden bench, I would not sit in front of that vat of boiling fat and watch you cook an omelet in it. That sounds amazing though. I really want to try that. Maybe we could recreate that at home. I might have to like, I might have to well, like maybe take like a grill. Exactly. on like a bunt pan or something yeah. like that and like i'm thinking about that egg we have like kind of a i have a kind of an egg thing so does aaron really like eggs. okay one of the things that i always have appreciated about all of your the convert the talks and the work that you've done david is like that like a context when you think about it in the context that you've talked about around it about this one talk that you did at JSConf a couple of years ago has always stuck with me about this idea of play and like play and work and like using that context of the situational context of thinking about your work or thinking about the way you do things with a, that different angle of it's not just, not just work, but it's something, it's a discovery process or it's something else has always inspired me. So is that still something that you bring to the things you're doing now? Like, is it something you think about a lot? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm always, you know, I often, sometimes I think about my relationship to computers and computer science. I think a lot of it's informed by still sort of feeling like an outsider because my background was, you know, in film. And I was really obsessed with film for a good chunk of my younger life. And it's specifically experimental film. Like that was my, that was my thing. I was just loved experimental film. So it wasn't just film it was like a, a genre of film that most people don't even care about 
So I've always had this sort of like approach to things where it's like, okay, I can, I can just do whatever, you know, or think about things in, in, in sort of the main line, the, what most people are saying this thing is. Or you can approach a thing and say, let's explore the edges. Maybe there are ideas or alternatives or, or paths that haven't been trodden that actually have a lot of surprises, that have a lot of value. And then, you know, I would say, yeah, definitely, definitely that, uh, that playful approach to whatever I'm into um, is important to me. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but it feels like closure script now is like a thing that people use and use in production and do. But I have a feeling when you started down that track, it was just like, is this a thing that is possible? Like, can't, uh, like, did you, when you initially did it, were you thinking, oh, like, this is something I will use as, or work on it as, like, something I will use, like, to write, to work in? Or was it more like, this is something I'm just interested in and I'm going to take that path? Uh, so that's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, you know, it, you know, my, my enthusiasm for it was, like, almost, I would, I would say even to, even today, and I, and I use it. Um, the more I do software stuff, I don't believe in, like, that there is some goal, right? You're doing something and it's just a process and, and likely... Likely, it's not going to take six months. It's not going to take a year, not two years, three years. It's going to take a long time. And, and if you start making your decisions based around it's going to take a long time, I think you end up being a lot happier. There's no, there's no conclusion you're ever going to reach. You're just working on the thing because you're, you're excited about it. And, and to be fair, in order to keep up your enthusiasm for extended periods of time like this, it really goes back to the community. I mean, it's very validating. It, it makes seem worthwhile that I spent and other people have spent so much time on this thing specifically because people come back and they're very grateful and they're and they're shipping awesome stuff and they're telling their stories so that you know that definitely when you're working on something for this long yeah in fact I would say maybe four years it would be hard to keep up my enthusiasm if there wasn't like some feedback and that was the same even when I was doing it when I was super in experimental film the best thing about experimental film is not that I'm looking at some you know at a theater by myself I'm in a theater with like all these really cool people that are really excited about the thing. And then after you see the film, you're like, oh my God, that was so amazing. There's somebody right next to you and you can talk about it for hours. I mean, it's, it's about play, but there's definitely a social element of play that cannot be undervalued here that makes it worthwhile. Yeah, something about that also is like, that kind of speaks to the context thing as well. It's almost like people are the context or the artists are the context in those cases. And it's like, at least when I was doing art history stuff and looking into that, like, you know, 90% of looking at art in that way is like talking about not, not necessarily like the, the, what the artist was thinking, but this socio-historic context around why, why this piece is important in a, in a period or like what it means Barnett Newman to like draw a line down a down a down a painting and be like this is art you know like what is what's the context and what is the who are the people who are the things that are behind this too that's most of what motivates me about getting interested in things is just like the the connections between the connections between things that's why that's one of the things that really draws me to the you know to 
Harry Smith's work and talking about him and his life and reading into his stuff is that he just like he had this almost desperate way of looking for those connections between things and kind of to the point where he was doing these very kind of weird material investigate, like kind of like looking, looking for a community in like finding paper airplanes on the street and trying to imagine like where all those different things came from and like how how all of the events in the world and whatever led to like him finding this in this spot and what it connects him to when he finds that on the street and that kind of stuff. This is a thing that kind of gets overlooked, I think, sometimes in conversations around community, uh, particularly in the programming world, right? Where it's like a, a thing that I think is true, regardless of what other people's perception of it is, is that if it sucks for someone to be around your community, like they're just going to leave regardless of how awesome and perfect you think it is and whatever solution you think it provides to whatever giant problem you think exists. If like people are jerks and people don't feel welcome and you don't entertain uh, even marginal people's uh, or particularly marginal people's like views about what makes them comfortable or uncomfortable in a community, like your community will just suck and it'll look just like you. And that won't be you just limit the potential so, so vastly by closing yourself off to that stuff. And it's so funny because I think it takes a long time. It took me a long time to realize that that's really what I valued in all of these different communities that I've been a part of in my life. Like I've done a lot of, I've had a lot of different circles and done a lot of different stuff. And when I was a teacher, it was like, I was in this community of teachers. And when I was a grad student, I was in this community of grad students. And when I was making music or doing this or doing that, or like, it was such a relief to me, I think in the last five or six years to realize that that's actually what I cared about. It like lets all this other stuff kind of melt away. Like I just don't really get involved in the controversy of this or that or the other thing, because what I'm really focused on is like the, the people. I totally, I totally agree. I mean, I'm just like one the 100%. That's what I, I mean. I, that's what I believe. It's that, you know, you do bottom out in the like in the artifact, like the movie. The movie has to be good. There has to be something that people can talk about, right? And even even if the even if, like even if the movie, in fact, like there's an amazing thing. I think it's really funny. There was this one experimental film by Michael Snow, which I believe he lived in New York. He did this film where it's for it's 20 minutes or 45 minutes long or something, but it's a vertical line moving like this, like left and right for 20 minutes, and then it switches to a to a horizontal line moving up and down for 20 minutes, and the first time he screened it, somebody, in, in New York, I believe, somebody got up and tried to go into the projection room and rip the film off the projector. <laughs> and, and I'm like, that, that's amazing. Like, that, that, that you could make something that makes somebody feel like, like so adamant, that angry. But, but the, the, the point is there is that I think there's something more important that the discourse, right? Like, yes, you have a point of reference and, and the, the point of reference has to be interesting. But, but as you say, the value, is, the value is in what we think about it together overall, right? There is a starting point, but it doesn't stand up on its own. Yeah, I mean, it's really f- another thing that <laughs> another thing that it's easier to be honest about now that I'm older and more experienced is that like, if you're honest, like, you know, you like you like the stuff that your friends make because you like your friends. Right. <laughs> and like, it's it's true. Like, you know, it's like I 
like if I know and like love someone and they make an album of music, like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to like it or at least I'm going <laughs> to give it like way more of a chance than yeah. if I uh, heard it in some other context. Right. And totally. I think well, that that's and if like, you don't and don't give them good feedback, then you're probably not a good friend. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's I like that part about being a a human, you know, I yeah. think that that's an, an, I think it's an endearing aspect. I think it's an important part of my personality. It's like, I need, I kind of need to know something about someone in a way to really deeply appreciate. And I, I feel like I know artists and like, yeah, I mean like this came out, right? Like this talk that I just wrote about like my friend calling my influences, my friends, like I really feel that way. Like I, yeah, yeah. I feel like I know something deep about that person. Like it can kind of go in, in both directions, you know, like if I really love your music, I'm, I would, and I was given an opportunity to get to know you, I would take it, you know? And if you were a dick, I probably wouldn't like your music as much. You know? <laughs> yeah. There isn't this objective thing that you can be wrong about, you know? No, it's, it, it's totally true. And I, and I will say that like, I mean, there's so many artists and there are some artists that I respect. And sometimes you find out they're fucking assholes and you're like, okay, you're an awesome artist, but it does take it down a notch for me. Yeah. I mean, and how could it not? I mean, there's uh I think this idea came up in, uh, you know, in the in the little flap about uh, Strange Loop and like a fascist speaking at Strange Loop. And it comes up in other like music circles a lot where it's like, yeah, this album is great, but whatever. They happen to be Nazis or whatever. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not really like, <laughs> you know, I think this is an interesting thing, like, uh because David, like you, you are someone that has, I would say, uh, I'm sure you would agree, very refined aesthetics when it comes particularly to like programming stuff. I mean, it's true in other parts of your life too, but since we're, we're kind of in the computery section of our, of our chat. And so you, uh, you, you, you feel like there are, um, better and worse ways to do things and you're vocal about the better ways and sometimes vocal about the worst ways of doing things. And you also have a little, like you're in a, you're sitting in a studio right now of, uh, that you share with a bunch of other people that do interesting things with computers and, Part of the reason why you're in that studio is because you want ideas to cross pollinate uh, uh, amongst people, right? And so, therefore, you have this context about who they are and what they're interested in and what they work on, so that when they release something or talk about it, you're you're going to be like, uh, you're going to be prone to be like, hey, this is like a cool thing that people should check out, right? And I think that that's like a a thing that I think that's an admirable quality because it shows that like you know you give a shit, you're involved, you're talking about things. But it is kind of funny. It is it is it is interesting to be self-critical about our relationships and influences on like what kind of gets created in, in our little communities, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, definitely. Um, I mean, I often think that what if there's something that I can do that's useful to other people. So I may get an idea. Maybe maybe we're, I, I think we're all similar in this way. I hear about an idea, I read a paper, or I, some functional programmer says something, and I think about it. I'm like, that's kind of interesting. Let me play around with that. And then I'm like, okay, I think this idea has legs. And you look around and not, a people, not that many people are aware of that idea yet. And so sometimes 
I'll be a little bit more um, pushy on my statement about this idea. Even though I know that it doesn't really hold water. When you, ideas are ideas, they all have flaws, but you'll often be pushy about an idea just to get people to consider it, just to, to, just to turn and maybe look at it, something, a problem in a different way. Because I, I often think a lot of the problems are, are just boiled down to not that there's answers, it's just that we haven't considered that there are many alternatives. And I think that that's probably the thing I think in software is the biggest problem, is that people are not very serious about weighing alternatives. You know, people definitely jump to, they, they often close doors when they should not be. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that there's a problem too of like once you kind of make a choice in one direction or another, there's something about the way information is presented on the internet, at least, that makes it feel like it's an absolute choice, right? Like now that you've done this, you can't do this. Or now that you do things this way, you can't do them that way. And I think that that's very, that's a very unnecessarily uh, limiting kind of thing also. It's really hard in these very terse communications that we're able to do on on the internet convey the breadth of what we're ever trying to like say or do and i think that that turns into like these tribal wars that are like pretty pointless and you know i mean that that's not saying anything new but it's like it's interesting to hear from you specifically about that too because i feel like People are constantly trying to rope you into these, these, uh, or at least for a while into, <laughs> oh, yeah. these, into these travel no, wars. They, and, and it's like, I, I, I've, yeah. And I, and I've stopped like, you know, like whenever I can see somebody's just trying to do that, I'm just like, I, I don't care. I just don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you do you <laughs> just like you do you <laughs> do my thing. It's cool. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to probably like talking about social justice too, but the idea and, and politics obviously, but like the idea that in someone doing one thing, everyone else is wrong <laughs> is just right, like yeah. a fundamental problem with, I mean, with the world, but as, like I find programming, like for some reason it gets falls into that trap so much and it's just, <sighs> it's exhausting, you know? I would say that's that that programmers are no less prone than anybody else. I mean, yeah. I just think you like, yeah, I feel like maybe as I get older, these reductionist, these reductionist arguments are just come on, like the world is really fucking complicated. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like they're mad that you're they're mad that you don't think your solution is for everyone. Yeah, they're like, what yeah. do you mean? What do you mean? Like <laughs> You can agree. They're like, there's 10 facts in the world. You can't agree with me on any fewer than 10 of them or else we're going to have a problem. It doesn't matter that that we're saying facts one through nine are exactly the same and then we only differ yeah, on one. Yeah, yeah. You know, I demand yeah. you, you owe me the explanation for the lack of universality of your solution. One thing that uh, I think it might be interesting for some of our listeners uh, to hear you talk about is going back to four years ago, you were kind of a hobbyist contributor to the ClojureScript ecosystem. And now you are, you know, you work for the company that us owns the copyright on ClojureScript. What's it like to kind of go from someone who contributed and had you had influence obviously as a contributor but now you're kind of one of the stewards of this project right uh and you will make decisions that impact the direction of 
this compiler that does magical things and turning closure into JavaScript code. Is that an interesting thing to talk about? Like, does it feel different or, or not? Is it like, do you feel like you have a responsibility now where you didn't before? Is your relationship to it kind of the same? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I was probably a lead contributor for quite some time before I started working at Cognitech. So in terms of my role, it didn't change that much, though I think it was maybe useful to um, other people to see that there was, that at, now that I was at Cognitech, me leading the project had sort of more of an official stamp. So maybe that created confidence about the, the project in general. But at the same time, you know, it's as much work as I do these days, it's definitely the case that if you maintain a project, so much of your time is just like reading tickets. Is this actually an issue? What's the priority of this issue? What does this person mean? Where, can, you, can you give me a minimum? You know, it's like there's a lot of like communication and often it's not me sitting down writing code. And actually, I would even say since my time at Cognitech, because closure has become more and more stable, uh, more and more, my, more of my time is just making sure that the contribution process works for would-be contributors than it does involve me writing significant new stuff. It's a project that if it, if it, people aren't familiar with ClojureScript, you should check it out. It sounds like it should be impossible, but it's actually kind of amazing um, what it's capable of doing. And people are building more and bigger projects. People should check it out. When people people ask me all the time, what should I use if I like do a front end thing? I was like, you should check out ClojureScript. It's actually really, I think it has a way of meshing really well with the types of problems that you tend to solve in, in front end programming. It's been really cool to see your work on that and 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 your other work that's sort of tangentially related. I've always said about David that the thing that impresses me about you and Aaron is Aaron is similar too. Um, I don't have as much of this quality, but like to go all the way from the paper to the initial implementation and then beyond that into like the thing that it's the it's the synthesis, right? Like I think that's really what you're saying, right? It's not just this direct translation. It's this idea plus getting like, you know, blended up in your brain blender for a while. And then like, however, it comes out the other side is this more solidified thing. More people should strive to create things that are actually an expression of deeper synthesized thought, uh, particularly in technology. Right. It's easier and more natural when you're making art. Right. Like you everyone makes derivative art, right? But they don't really, they don't really try to get other people to like use it or like look at it or whatever. Right. Right. When you're, when you're making something uh, and, and it's something that has a technical artifact, I think it's, I don't know why, but it, it is harder to like make sure that your ideas are present all the way through and to not just kind of like copy and paste the idea, so to speak. I don't, I don't really know why, I don't know really why that is, but it's just, it seems harder. Maybe it's just harder to arrive at, at ideas that are different or synthesized in that way. But I think, I think part of it is kind of what David was saying that there's like this belief around like the infallibility of ideas that often pervades programming conversation, like where it's like you have this idea and then it has to be the idea people just don't like admitting that they're wrong and like correcting course. But in reality, like getting from like the sketch of idea and synthesizing this final solution 
is a process of hundreds of ideas that succeed and fail. And I think people, especially in open source where it's like in the open and people can see, could potentially see the failures that you've made along the way. People are like somehow believe that the work of getting to this final solution of a project is like someone sit down, think for forever, write code, ship, you know, it's like, it's not, we're in reality. It's this iterative process of like success and failure and, and all of that. Right. Totally. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us, David. I would, and we could definitely hang out all, hang, hang out all day and talk. Um, but I'm assuming one of you guys has better shit to do. I definitely but, um, uh, thanks everyone for tuning in or I don't know what you do. You don't really tune into a podcast. You press play. Thanks for pressing play. Thanks for letting us into your uh, ear holes for an hour uh, or 40 minutes. This has been another episode of Beats, Rye, and Types. You can find us on the internet uh, at twitter.com slash types. Tell your septuagenarian relatives to like us on facebook.com slash types. You can fund our creations on patreon.com slash types. You can pre-order our pizza book <laughs> at beatsridetypes.com slash pizza and... I hope you've been following our daily tips. We have successfully completed four full weeks of daily tips where we tell you what you should be reading, listening to, watching, and playing so you don't even have to think for yourself anymore. Life is so great in 2016. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks again, David. Thank you. It was a lot of fun.